0: Tonight's class is really the third title, because as we mentioned last week, last week was part two of the second class, which we divided into two. So tonight's class is titled Fulfillment, How Do All These Dreams Become Reality Through a Physical King, Moshiach. Um, we spoke so much about the, ideal, the ideals of the Mashiach era, the time of Mashiach. And uh, the great divine revelation, the incredible enlightenment that is going to be at that time for all of humanity, um, and mostly the unparalleled revelation of God Himself in the world, and the thank you, and the peace and tranquility. And um, a world at the time of Mashiach where there was only going to be so much goodness, plenty, no hunger, no war, no competition. So the question over here is okay, we believe in that ultimate era and that ultimate time. The question is. Why are we insisting that all of this is going to be brought about through a human being, Moshiach, otherwise known as a Messiah? Why can't we just believe in the notion of world peace, of this exhilarating time? Why is it associated with a person, a descendant of King David, of David and Melech, and that is Moshiach? And as we st- I've already uh, showed you that the belief in Moshiach inherently is to believe in this human king. Actually, the era of Moshiach, we don't even call it, you know, we can call it end of days. Aharitayamim, <laughs> the end of time, end of days. But yet, the way we have referred to it throughout all of our Jewish history and through all of time... Is always Mashiach. The actual translation of the word Mashiach means the Anointed One. An Anointed One is a King, the King, who was going to be anointed with the special, anointed with the special oil, which God had given Moshe Rabbeinu a special, um, a special uh, uh, a recipe to create this perfumed oil, which carries within itself that mystical power to elevate the person who gets anointed with that oil way, way, way above everyone else. So we call Mashiach the anointed one. And we call the entire period the days of Mashiach, which means the days when this individual will reign of his kingdom. So why is that so important? And why is that so essential? So the idea is as follows we really really need to understand the essence Don't worry, you're good. We're waiting for you. So we really need to understand the essence of our relationship of the Jewish people with God. What's that core core essential bond? Um, We know the relationship of parent and child, husband and wife, all that is in scripture, all of that is in the writings of the sages and the like. But at the core core fundamental essence of this connection, of this relationship, is the relationship of king and subjects. Halachically, meaning on the most practical level, we are, God has chosen us to be his subjects. And we have subjugated ourselves to him and accepted him as our king. Eventually, when Mashiach will come, God will be the king over the entire world. Of all eight billion people, all of humanity will recognize and will serve the creator. But at Sinai, God had chosen the trailblazers, or so to speak, the Jewish people, to actualize and eventually bring all of humanity to this state of divine awareness. So it's all based on a relationship of king and subject. Now, we have to analyze for just a bit and understand the concept of a king because because of the corruption of kings throughout history that have become such tyrants and so on and so forth that we've become so allergic to the notion of a king. And we don't really appreciate the idea behind it. Essentially, the idea is incredible. It's very, very beautiful and very powerful. Mm-hmm. Problem is when a corrupt person is the king, a selfish person who doesn't have the, intent, the best interest of the people but of himself, then we're in very, very big trouble when you have someone with such absolute power. But the essence of, the re, of king and subject is the most magnificent thing. And really, if you think about it, it would take the world out of all of its troubles that we have today. Problem in the world today is we don't have a leader that we can all trust and follow in a sense blindly. Trust that they can, that they have vision to see a thousand years ahead of time. We don't have, and that they have our best interests, not their own selfish interests. But if, imagine if we would know that this person is absolutely pure with absolute purity, without any bit of. In, a trace of impurity in their heart. They have their best interest, and they're wise with wisdom that is way, way beyond. Take, imagine how far humanity would be able to be, the strides we would be able to take. Now we're in a situation where we're making the best out of the situation, which is the best way of governing when, in, when you, when you can't have a monarchy is we have, we have a democracy. But the democracy, basically, you're subject to the vision of the masses. It's really what it's all about. We're subject to the vision of what people understand, and that's what they're voting for. And the vision of the masses is not too, too great. If you have someone that has that vision. Now, a true king, someone who deserves really to be a king, and when we speak about King David or the like, true kings were people that were head and shoulders above the rest. I say are cut above the rest. It says so about King uh, Shal, the first Melech, the first king of the Jewish people. Literally, the Torah describes him as being head and shoulders above the people. But what that really meant was emotionally, intellectually, way above them. His emotions were more sophisticated than everybody else's intellect. That's the idea that his shoulders, which represent the heart, the emotion, was above the intelligence of all the scholars, of, all, of everyone else, way above the people. When people recognize an individual of such exaltedness of such height of such qualities so the people are excited they're super excited to belong to this individual to surrender themselves to this individual and to live his aspirations and his dreams because they appreciate that his aspirations and his dreams is truly at the best interest of everybody in the in the in in, in of 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 the people so they surrender themselves to the king completely so here we have to defra- and, and 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 point out there are two parts to a king there is the king's actual governing the fact that he is the one who sets he he issues an edict. He's the one who sets the laws of the land, and people obey those laws, and there is consequences for not obeying. Well, every government has that. That you, whether it's run by a, a, a king or whether it's run by a democracy, there are rules, leg- legislative law that we have today governed by whatever the Senate and the Congress that create the law, and then. There is the consequences. Listen to Yudan. So people are afraid, so they obey. Right? They obey what they need to do because of... that's one aspect of the king. He sets the law. Need to be. He needs to go to war. You have a nuclear threat from North Korea now. It's kind of frightening. What's gonna be? Imagine to be in the. In, imagine to be now in the shoes of a, of a leader who has to decide if you strike first or you're willing to, God forbid, wait to see what's gonna happen. Pretty pretty. But that's the king. The king is the one who actually leads the people, doing, sets, sets the role of the land. That is the external part of the king. That's the king in, his actual, in, in actual governorship. But there's something much deeper. There's a deep, intrinsic bond with the souls of the people. The people love their king. They admire, and willfully, we're not talking about over here a king who's a tyrant, a ruthless dictator who imposes his will on the masses. We're talking about a people that recognize that this individual is so great and they, with, with all their desire and want, surrender themselves to belong to this king and be part of him. Now when they fear him, they fear him not because of the punishments, they fear the king because of who he is, because of his essential Reality, because of his exaltedness, because of him being such an elevated being, they have a fear of the king. In uh, the book from the fifth Chabad Rebbe, the Rashab, Reb Shalom Ber, in his uh, Sefer um, called Samach to Samach, Reish Nun Zion. So, over there, he explains that the primary fear of the king is not the fear of the disobeying of his commandments and what kind of consequences or what kind of penalties there are. The essential fear of the king is the exaltedness of the king itself. That's why there is a rule. Torah governs everything. There is a rule in Jewish law that on a king, you may not sit on his throne. No one is allowed to sit on his throne. No one is allowed to ride on his horse because we recognize that this is a human being that's is a way above everyone else. That's he sees above and higher the rest of the people. He adds an interesting thing, not in that safer, but in Hemshech's "Iron Bays, which is another one of his monumental teachings. Over there he discusses that that's the difference between the fear people have from a governing official, like some other aristocrat or some other person, governor or the like, and the fear that people have from the king. The fear of a governor or whatever other authority that there is, is a fear of the punishment that he can do if you don't listen to him. Because he is powerful, because he has, he has authority, and he can, God forbid, harm you and the like, throw you into prison, throw you into the dungeon like it was in the olden days. That's why you fear him. It's not, the, but it's not so with the king. The, the fear of the king is an awe. One is awed by this very, very, very elevated person. It's hard for us to relate because we never walked into a palace and we never stood in front of a true king. We have make-believe, you know, more for show type of kings in England and the like, but not true kings. Again, when it's corrupted, it's the worst thing that can possibly be. But when it's good and positive, it really is an amazing thing. With God, now it's interesting, Rambam in, in, in uh, the laws of Geneva, Zelo, Vaveda, which is the laws, says... In regards to a king, and we're saying about this essential, essential subservience, where the people surrender that they are his servants, Ramam says these words: they have all decided, they have all agreed upon the, the people, the masses, Shahu that he is their master, and they are his servants. they are his subjects. That's king. Now, we know that God's kingship can be understood from a king. From We know that, that the sages tell us that the kingdom of heaven is similar to the kingdom on earth. So we can use the kingdom on earth as an analogy to God's kingship as well. When God came down to Sinai, when God created the world, he created the world, the Kabbalists tell us, and we spoke about that earlier, because Hashem wants to be a king. God wanted to be a king over, over his subjects, and that's Eventually, as we said, over all of humanity. But in Sinai, in Har Sinai, God chose the Jewish people to be his subjects. And in that subjugation of the Jewish people to Hashem at Har Sinai there are two parts to it. Number one, God gave us the commandments, 613 commandments, a whole bunch of do's and a whole bunch of don'ts, with so many details and details of details, laws of diet, laws of dressing, laws of business, laws, every aspect of our life is governed by Torah law. So many laws. But that's the practical laws of the kingship, of the kingdom, of how he's running legislation, how he decrees, his decrees upon us to live our lives in accordance to God's will. But prior to that, and even before that, when we stood at Har Sinai, we accepted God as our king, and we are his subjects. God at Sinai said, Kili b'nei, it's a verse, it's open Pasuk, Kili b'nei Yisrael avadim. To me, the Jewish people are servants. They're my servants. They belong to me. He chose us to be his servants. We chose him to be our king. And as a result of that essential subjugation, the second thing that we do is now, what do you want? Now, your majesty, what do you want? How can I serve you? So we say, we know that we do this every day in our prayer. Every day we have to reaffirm, we have to reorient ourselves because there's a part of us that really doesn't like this whole business of subjugation and servitude. It wants to have a good time, it wants to do whatever it wants. So this idea is obviously it's connected to our deeper soul, to a higher part of us. But every day in the Shema, we have two portions to the Shema. One is we say Shema Yisrael, Hashem with the first portion of Shema. That. Part of the Shema is us accepting God's yoke of heaven. Sages say, you should accept upon yourself the yoke of heaven first. Once you accepted upon yourself the yoke of heaven, now you should accept upon yourself the yoke of the commandments. That's the second portion of the Shema. Which means that our obedience of the commandments are not because we agree and we think it's a nice thing. It's, oh, this is lovely. Charity is lovely. It's so wonderful. It's so nice. It's not because of that. We do it as, as we're, we're expressing our servitude, and God is exercising his kingship and getting satisfaction and pleasure of being a king through our obedience. And that's why the main thing in doing the mitzvah, even when we like them or when we don't like them, but even if we do love doing a mitzvah, we're supposed to set aside those feelings and do them essentially because God commanded then on top of that, we can enjoy it as well. Nothing wrong with that. But the essence of it is a subjugation. Because that's kingship. Interesting, Maimonides says in his laws of marriage and divorce, in and Rambam talks about the, the, how deeply embedded this servitude is in our souls, in our Jewish consciousness. So Rambam says when you have a Jew who doesn't want to listen to a mitzvah, now Maimonides, again, is a 12th century rabbi, okay? Talking about someone who lived way back, right? Uh, how many years is that? That's over, it's about 800, 900 years ago. So Ma- Maimonides is interesting. He's, he says a statement that is so amazing. He speaks about the subconscious way back then when no one really was talking about the subconscious. Maimonides says that when a person doesn't want to fulfill a commandment, the Jewish law is that they were allowed to compel this person to fulfill the commandment. If the Torah, for example, says that this person needs to give a divorce for his wife, but he is not being compliant with the court, so they were allowed to enforce even physical pressure to get this person to give the divorce if, if according to the Torah is supposed But there is a problem. There is a legal problem. The legal problem is there is a law that says that a, for, that a compelled, that a person can only divorce his wife if he is doing it willfully, voluntarily. It can't be compelled. So now you're, in a, you're stuck. What happens if he doesn't want to listen? So they would, they would apply physical, even physical pressure and, and even beat him until he gives the... So the, the, the law, of the, the Talmud says we have a solution. And it sounds like the most ridiculous, insane solution. You beat him until he says he wants to. And when he says he wants to, now he wants to. So that's insane. Ramam says the same. We all know he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to get whipped anymore. What do we mean he doesn't want? He wants so Rambam says, you don't understand the Jewish psyche. Rambam says, deep inside the Jewish soul, every Jew essentially wants to do what God wants him to do. There is an evil inclination that is blocking us from feeling what we really want. Therefore, all you did was remove this external power that's blocking the essential desire of the soul to allow the true desire to come out. But if you look at Rambam, Rambam says an interesting thing. He says that every single Jew, Rotzel me mi Yisrael, he wants to be a Jew. salassos is kol haMitzvus, and he wants to do all the commandments. Ule and to become distant min veros from the sins. So Raman says two things. The first thing he says, every Jew wants to be a Jew. Then he says, and he wants to do all the commandments. So what are these two things? Mm-hmm. Wanting to be a Jew means I want to be part of that people that are subjugated to God. I want to be. I want to belong. To God's God's kingdom. Now, once I want to belong to Hashem's kingdom, now the next phase is, so I want to do all the commandments. Because again, as we spoke earlier, in a king there's two things. There is the essential bond of king and subject, and then there is the practical observance and application of that in the activities. Once we have that idea, now we can go back to what does it mean in Judaism when we had a physical human king? See, the human king in Israel, the Jewish king, whether it was King Saul, Shola, Melech, whether it was King David, and so forth, they encapsulated God's kingship. Because here's, as I mentioned about this the other other day, because God in his commandments to us and in the way he wants to rule over us as a king is something that meddles in every aspect of our life. It's not like he's, you know, a non evasive God. He's very evasive. He buds into everything. There isn't a thing in your life that he's going to leave you alone. Doesn't like what you have in your kitchen. Milk and meat. I don't like that. Move them apart. Here and there. This is not a kosher relationship. This, even with your, even with your wife, can't. this is a time you can't. He, literally in every aspect of our life, he mixes in. And we have to obey his commandments. Now in order for a person to be able to live with such restraints in so many aspects, in every aspect of our life, this kingship has to be very real. The king has to be very real. If God is a being that we cannot touch, feel, see, or, or, or know, because he's, ap- he's, the, uh, the above, he's the abstract of all abstraction, and we can't have any... Other. So how are we supposed to live with that reality and comply with his will in our daily activities when, we, when he's such a distant, a distant uh, thing, so far from our, from our reality? So therefore, for that purpose, Hashem appoints a human representative in this world to manifest his kingship. And that's the idea of a a Jewish king. And therefore, in this Jewish king, there is also these two things. Number one, the people surrender to the king. In essence, when they are accepting the king, and they said, "Long, long live King David, when they accepted the melech as a king, in essence at the core they are accepting again they're reaffirming themselves to god's kingship. when the people are actually when the king goes and decrees upon them decrees he's not doing it on his behalf he's doing it as exercising god's authority and god's power over them this idea i'd like to share with you from the tzemach tzedek is the third chabad rebbe he so develops that he's so in such a beautiful way expresses this concept that it's not like there is a king and God approves the king. It's actually that he is almost like the physical container for that spiritual attribute of God's kingship to manifest. So in his Sefer Derach Secha, which is a book where he explains the mitzvahs, the the Tzemach Tzedek says like this, I'm going to read a quote for you. The main intention of appointing a king who shall with him, and through him, the Jewish people will be surrendered to God. Because all the Jewish people need to be surrendered to the king, and they have to listen to his command. In all that he decrees. And here is a very important idea. We're not afraid that this king is some being that might kind of gain his own power. Because the true Jewish king is someone that... The king himself has a very, very high capacity of divine consciousness and godly awareness. The king is aware of God so powerfully... Not like us, by us it's a distant faint echo somewhere way up there that we know there is a God. But by, by the king it's real, as real, as tangible as it is to us due to the uniqueness of his soul. And King David, David said about himself, If I wasn't silent, which means King David is saying, Please these words. The surrender to God was felt so deeply in his soul. Physically, King David couldn't lift his eyes up. His fear, his presence, his awareness of the divine supreme being being present here right now caused in him such fear and such humility in front of the creator of the universe that he literally couldn't lift his eyes. And he didn't have any sense of arrogance where he would raise himself up to be a somebody, to take himself seriously as as he being something. He had all the power. He even put people to death who didn't listen to him. But that was nothing to do with his personal preferences. It was purely only because he knew he's representing God's kingdom in the world. And it was God's will that he was totally devoted to as he says, he's like a dome, like a stone that has no movement. That's how, that's how conscious and, and that's how powerful his surrender to Hashem was. Since he is nullified to God to the utmost, and the Jewish people are able to relate to him because he's human, he's physical, he's someone they can see, wearing a crown, walking with royal garments, riding on a, on a royal um, uh, uh, coach. And they can see this great this being. So when they're surrendered to him, they're surrendering themselves to Hashem, to God. The Jewish people are surrendered to Hashem. So that's the concept. Samech Tzedek says about the Jewish king. Now, now also will, this will fit very well in what it says in Divrei Hayamim, which is one of the. Um, in in, in in scripture in, in the Navi it says Divrei Hayamim, it's the Chronicles of where the Torah. Disc- so it says over there King David is talking about his son who's going to be the next king Solomon. It says b'ni, Hashem chose King Solomon my son to sit al Malchus Hashem Al Yisrael, to sit on the throne of God's kingship for the Jewish people. That means King David is saying my son is not sitting on his own throne. He is actually sitting on God's throne. And then it also says later, when Solomon became king, and he was the greatest king we've ever had, it was the, king, the kingdom of the Jewish people reached its most powerful state during the, the reign of Solomon, of Shlomo Melech. What does it say? Vayeshev Shlomo Alkisei Hashem Shlomo sat on the throne of God as a king. Again, there's nothing, there's not, there's nothing of his own. He's actually... Capturing God's regality, Hashem's royalty is enclosed in him, and that's how he's king. That's the idea of, a Jew, of the king. Now we'll understand something really, really phenomenal, which without this is really puzzling. And that is Rambam, Maimonides again, the codifier of Jewish law, and the one who gave us the fundamentals of our faith. He, the Rambam is the one who describes Jewish faith. 13 principles of faith. Maimonides says that in the midst of all of that, he says it is a fundamental principle that we have to believe in Mashiach, that the Messiah will come, Moshiach will come one day. That's what Rambam says. But he adds more, not in, 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 in his Pirisha Mishnah. Rambam says, included in this Emuna is to believe in these words. Rambam says, Mechlal HaYasodaze, included in this fundamental principle. David to believe that there is no king to the Jewish people other than the family of David, Umizeres Shlomo, and from the descendants of King Solomon of Shlomo and Melech. And hear what the Rambam says, anybody who is fighting against this king, this family, kingdom, he's denied God. It's powerful stuff. And and against the prophets. Now one can ask. Listen, there are many things it says in the Torah. The Torah speaks of seven heavens. Okay. Science, the science understands seven heavens. What exactly does it mean? Well, if it says so in the Torah, we believe. We believe what the Torah says. Sometimes we understand it. Sometimes we don't understand it. If someone says, someone, let's say, never heard that the Torah says that there are seven heavens. And he believes that there are five heavens. Is this person lacking something fundamental in his Belief as a Jew? No. There are many things the Torah says that I never heard about, and I don't believe in them because I never heard about it. If, if, I, if I see it in a book, it's written somewhere. I'll believe in it, but right now I don't know about it. Why would Rambam say that believing in, the, in, in this kingdom of Mashiach and in and, and the family of the kingdom of God, Do- if someone doesn't believe in that, there, there, there is something fundamental missing. One of the pillars of faith is missing in their Judaism. Which is really a strange thing. Why would that be so? Again, it's true because God promised King David, and we're going to speak about that soon, that he will be the eternal king for the the Jewish people. We understand that. There's a promise, and therefore it's true. But that doesn't make it a fundamental principle in Jewish faith. A fundamental principle means that without this, the entire building will collapse. If I take that beam away, I have one, two, three, four beams, we're not going to move them. We're going to keep them over here because we hope that this is kind of holding up the structure, right? So in, 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 these are the principles of faith, and Rambam picks from all of the Jewish belief system 12, 13 things. Rambam says are the pillars. Now I'll give you an example. God promised to Aaron Hakohen, the high priest, Aaron the high priest, right? Moshe's brother, that his that for him he is a kohen, he's a priest. And all of his descendants will be priests forever. That the priestly family is only from the descendants of Aaron. And that's a fact. Is that one of the pillars of faith in the Jewish people that I have to believe in the eternity of the principle of, of, of Aaron's kingdom? It's not, a, it's, it's not a foundation of faith, even though it's true, because Torah says so. Yet, the eternity of kingship of David Amelech. This eternity of this kingdom is something that Rambam says is a principle of faith. Why? But now it makes sense. Because this is, this is so fundamental to Judaism. Because the, the, having a king, the king is not a king just because he's a king. The king is a king because through this human king, God is a king. And that was the whole purpose of creation. And that was the whole purpose of selecting the Jewish people, bringing us to Sinai, that we should become his servants and he should be our king. A very important link in that is a physical human king because that's the one who bridges and makes that connection, makes God's kingship very, very real. And without this, you're lacking. It's so strange because speak to the average Jew, even observant Jew, even learner Jew even scholar across the Jewish world and ask him this question. No clue. No clue. Why? A king? Okay, it's a king. Yeah, king. No king. It's like none of them feel like essential to Judaism. But when you learn a little bit, you get clear. You see, wait, wait, this is. And Rambam says so. That this is essential because Hashem's kingdom is very serious. Observance of mitzvahs are not just, as we said earlier, it's not just things we do. These are all things expressing the idea that God is the authority and the ruler and the king of the world. And for that, we need a king, a physical king who actualizes that. In addition to that, in, in addition to that um, we said earlier, what, what, once the king is king, he's representing God as a king. The next thing is the king is supposed to assure actual observance. So that's why, take a think about this, the Jewish king, when you, took a, when you take a look at the laws of Jewish monarchy or Jewish sovereignty of a king, you see that Rahman points out very, very strongly that the Jewish king's main objective is to assure Torah observance. That the Jewish people keep the commandments. That's his main job. In other words, even though, as being a ruler over the Jewish people, he has to make sure that there's a good economy, and he's in charge of education, and he has to make sure of security of the nation, and he has to build a military, and he has to be in charge of all these things. But that's all secondary to the Jewish king. His primary role, my man, that he says, these are the words, and in everything he does, this is Rambam and the Laws of Kings, Tia Magamasai should be all of his strivings, Umaqshafto and his thoughts, Laharim Dasa Emes, to raise the, the, the true faith and Ulamalai sa'olam and to fill the world tzedek with righteousness. In other words, his job is to have the Jewish people keep the commandments and even non Jews keep the Noide laws, the seven Noide laws, as much as he's able to. I and mean, obviously, in the, king, the time of King David, King David wasn't the ruler of the world. He was the ruler of the Jewish people. He had impact on other nations, but not Solomon was already reached his power, his kingship extended onto nations far across the world. And he had a huge influence in the improvement of people living moral and ethical life according to the will of the Torah. It wasn't that permanent. Again, the kingdom came apart, but we'll see soon. That's the idea. Um. That's why we also find an interesting thing. The sages tell us, Rambam also brings this, that there are three commandments which the Jewish people are obligated to do when they... God instructed the Jewish people three primary things they need to do when they come into the land of Israel after the 40 years of wandering in the desert. When they came in with Yeshua, with Joshua, into the into Eretz Israel, there were three commandments that they needed to keep. They needed to do primarily. And these are this order. To appoint a king, to annihilate Amalek, right? Amalek is a, a nation of evil. Okay? to annihilate Amalek would be similar to annihilate ISIS, something like that. and to, and to build a third temple. to build a temple Live noise, that wasn't then the third that was there to build a base on English. These are the three things that, it, that, that needs to be done. And, but it's in this order. Why is it in this order? Because we can understand like this. Just like in observance, what do we have to do first in our observance? First, we have to accept our God as our king. Once we accept God as our king, now we get down to business, to actual governorship and actual compliance to the commandments. So building the temple, building the, temple the whole idea of building the temple is to bring about the completion of observance. Because without the Beis Amigdash, without the Beis Amigdash, we can't do the we can't observe the commandments. Most, so many of the commandments relate to the temple worship. So the building of the Beis Amigdash is actually, once you have the Beis Mikdash, now you can implement the 613 commandments. But even before that, we need first the king. Because the implementation of the 613 commandments are all just an expression. These are, it's an external expression of something deeper. That we, that we are all God's servants. And how are we God's servants? Through the king. So first it's a king. Then the king has to fight the enemies that are going to get in our way of building this temple and actualizing the, the mitzvah observance. Finally, he builds the base on Migdash, and then we have complete observance. That's the order of the way God becomes a king over the Jewish people. That's the order. It follows these three stages. And when King David became king, he actually became king. He actually did these three things. First, he became king. and he First, he conquered the parts of the lands of Israel that were not yet conquered. So he finished kind of establishing the territory of the empire. Once he did that, he waged war against those that were making trouble. The Philistines and these and those. There were, major, there were battles that King David fought. After he did that, he prepared the building of the temple. He didn't build it himself. His son, King Solomon, built it. But he bought the property and he made all the plans. And finally, when Shlomo HaMelech became king, Shlomo HaMelech now built the temple. And now, for the first time, we had full observance of the Torah. And in the days of Shlomo HaMelech and King David, that was the time when Jewish people in general observed the commandments. And this is the job of the king. That's the idea. That's Jewish kingship. Now, we can also understand something. The Rebbe says something really, really special. That's the reason Rambam, who's, when, he, when he writes a book of Torah law, every, the, the place in where he puts things are also very, very important. He doesn't, just, he doesn't just write a bunch of laws and throw them around all over. His order... Of the way he sets up the laws is very meticulous. What's the final laws in all of the Rambam's Mishneh Torah? When he gives us he's the first person who codified all the mitzvot, all the commandments. What's his final laws? The last laws of, of, of Rambam is the laws of kings. The law Hilchutmalach in laws of kings. Why did Rambam put the laws of kings at the end? Because Rambam is telling you, you have all these commandments. Now all of it is leading, all, in order to complete all of this, or the ultimate completer, who is going to complete the observance, and as a result of that, the, the, what the observance is supposed to display, and that is that God is king over the world, you need to have a king. So that's why we conclude with kings, because only when there is a king, we have complete observance. In the laws of kings itself, the last two chapters of the Laws of Kings is the laws of the future king, of King Mashiach. Because as much as King David and Solomon managed to complete this task, it was only with a, in a limited way. The ultimate, the ultimate realization of God's kingship in the world is going to happen through the great, 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 grandson of King David, which is Mashiach, and Moshiach is going to bring about this on a universal scale. Because once he comes, all the nations in the world will recognize his kingdom. We've, we remember last week, I quoted to you Rambam. How Rambam is saying that King Moshiach's palace is going to be renowned all worldwide. And nations are going to come study and hear from him. Because of his tremendous righteousness. And because of the wonders that he will show. The miracles that he will show. Which means his, display, his reach His renown, and as a result of that, 8 billion people on the planet will surrender themselves to His authority. And and His authority is for the ultimate betterment of all of mankind. And bring all of mankind to an awareness of God and ever-increasing awareness of Hashem. Because besides being an awesome king, He's going to be the greatest sage and the most wise person, inspired with divine knowledge that's going to pour like an infinite fountain. And through him to the, to the rest of humanity. But you see that that's the last laws. Because that's where the Torah and the mitzvot are completed. In Moshiach. Now, let's analyze for a couple of moments. The uniqueness of the Davidic dynasty. You see, David Amela, King David... And Shlom Melech and his descendants are not the only kings that the Jewish people have. As I mentioned earlier, the first king that officially is called king is Shol HaMelech. And he's not a descendant of King David. He's actually King David's father-in-law who's chasing after him and wants to kill him all the time. Okay? So this is King Shol HaMelech. Now, before that, according to the sages, Joshua, Yeshua, is also considered a king. Moses, Moshe, is also considered a king. So what is unique about, is there anything unique about the Davidic kingdom? And here is something very, very special. God promises David HaMelech eternal kingdom. Hashem promises it to him, and that he is the king of the Jewish people. Him, his children, will be, his successors, will be the king for the Jewish people forever and ever. Brings to mind, let's read a, a verse in Tehillim in Psalms Peites 89 Psalm 89 the verse says like this God tells King David even if his children will forsake my commandments the Torah and in my precepts and in my laws they will not walk I will punish them I will with a whip I will I will Reckon with them for their sins. Ubenegayim, and with other plagues, avoid them for their sins, and I won't let them get away with it. But the me but my kindness, which is my promise of eternal kingdom, I will never take away from him. The and I will not be um, I won't lie, I won't be unfaithful, Baminasi, to my to my to my faith, to the trust of what in which I promised King David. So I'm telling so is saying this will be the king, the kings forever. In the words of Maimonides again, again, we always look at Maimonides to really clarify everything. Maimonides in the Laws of Kings in his first chapter says like this: Kivan Shach David, as soon as David, King David, was anointed, Zacha, he merited the Keser Malchus, the crown of kingdom, he merited it. In other words, Till now, even though there were kings, but not necessarily the crown of kingdom. But now in Davada and kingship is to him, him and his children, his his, his male descendants, Ad Olam forever and ever. So it's passing down to the king, and it's only to King David's children. So over here we have internal kingdom. But what does this mean? It's not, see, but we see this is very fundamental. This is not just, it happens to be, that who is the one, who is going to be the king, it's King David. There's something really, really deep, because there were many other kings to the Jewish people. Right after Solomon passed away, Shlomo melech passed away, he had a son, his name was Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the third generation of King David. And during his reign, the people didn't like it, he gave too high taxes, he demanded taxes very... And there was a kind of a revolt. And there was a prophet. They didn't like him. And a prophet, the prophet, Achia Hashiloni, one of the great prophets, went based on a prophecy. There were directly instructions from God. And appointed another king. A competitive king. And his name was Yeravam. Turned out to be a very wicked guy. But initially he was appointed. I guess everybody has free choice. Okay, this Yeravam was appointed by the prophet. To be the king. And he became the king over the ten tribes and David HaMelech's uh, um, son or grandson was a king only over two tribes, Yehuda and Benyamin. The kingdom was now broken for a couple of hundred years. There were two kingdoms in Israel, the kingdom of the north, kingdom of the south. The kingdom on the south was in Jerusalem, that was the descendant of David, and the kingdom on the north was the kingdom of of the ten tribes. Rambam says that that king, Rambam says clearly, a king that is appointed by a Navi. I'm going to quote to you the Rambam. Rambam says, a king, Navi Shahamid Melech, a prophet who appoints a king, Mishar Shifte Yisroel from any of the other tribes, Hareza Melech, this person is a king, Vachal Mitzvah Sammauchos boy, and all commandments of the king are, are relate to him. We have to treat this person with respect and awe of a king and all aspects of kingdom relate to this king. If the prophet, if we know it's a prophet, who appointed the king. But Ramam says, even then, even then, ikar the main kingdom, LeDavid David is for David. So really, what does this mean? The main kingdom is for David. It doesn't mean quantitatively because you see that King David's son, Rehoboam, was a king over the minority. The majority of the people were by, were by Yeravim ben Nevat, were not by King David. What it means is qualitatively. This is what the Rebbe explains, lobavitch Rebbe, in a sikhah, in Parshish Chai Um uh, in his in his Chelech the Kutis the Rebbe explains, what does the Rambam mean, Iker HaMalchus LaDavid, and he explains it based on the idea, which Rambam says, that when King David became king, he took the crown of kingdom. Keser Malchus. This idea is to be understood based on what we were talking about the whole time earlier. That a king has two parts to him. There is the actual, the actual governing and the laws in which he implements and he has full authority to decree laws upon the land. But there is something deeper in that the king is essentially a king. Not just because he governs. He is an elevated being above everyone else. That aspect of being essentially regal, essentially royal, that royalty, which is a gift from God, coming from God's regality, King David is the only one who has that and his descendants Have that special Wi-Fi to pick up that signal and translate that into their souls. They're the only ones who have that divine regality in them, which means the natural that 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 kingship is their nature. Kingship is who they are. They're just above everyone. You see them, you recognize you're dealing with someone who's just above everyone else, with with such, with such that that demands respect and that King David had only his family has. That's the meaning of the crown, kesser Just physically, when you look at a crown, when a king wears a crown, the crown represents the idea that this is a human being that's different. You see, a king has a different kind of a house. People have a home. The king has a palace. Uh, king, uh, people have a, a, uh, uh, you know, have have a coach, and the king has a royal coach with, you know, with with with, with you have six white horses that are going. You can tell it's like a different, fine. But in a sense, okay, the king has a, a palace, and other people have nice homes, and some people also have mansions. They look like palaces. A palace, it's not unique to the king that only a king has. A nice coach, okay, yeah, nicer, fine. A, a, a crown is not another hat. A crown is a unique thing. Only a king wears a crown. So a crown distinguishes the king and puts him in a complete different place. So spiritually that means when we say that King David became, got the crown, means this idea of being another kind of human being above the rest is only for the family of David. Like for example, we find that also by, by uh, Achashverosh, when Haman, came, when Haman comes to him and, and, he, and he asks him, what would you do for a person who the king wants to honor? The king asked him. So Haman says he thought it's himself. He says let him, let him, let him, let him dress him in the royal garments and give him the uh, and, and 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 put him on the royal crown and ride him or have him ride on the king's uh, uh, carriage. And a person should run in front and say so should be done to the king. So we find that when Haman mentioned the crown, he stepped over. He stepped over a line. You see, when Achashverosh answers and he tells him, Haman, you should go do that. But he gives everything. He tells him take the guard, take the coach. Take... Not the crown. The crown is not given to anybody else, because the crown is the essential regality, the essential elevation of the king. That cannot be shared. That cannot be given. That quality, that essential quality, doesn't go over to anybody. Kabbalistically, it's also that way. We know that in Sephiroth, in attributes, there are every attribute has all the other attributes in them. So the attribute of kingship has ten sefirot, and ultimately it has keter malchus, the crown of malchus. The crown of of kingship, kabbalistically means, the essential power of kingship, as it is embedded in your soul. Not The power of malchut in malchus is the actual power of ruling. The power of keser malchus is the essential quality of this regality. This is only for the family of David. So even though there were other kings, like we said, the family. In essence, there was always only one king. They were governing powers, but they did not have this. And both they didn't have this unique attraction that the king David had. Secondly, from the people's end, the people never gave themselves over with their entire fanaticism to their to their king. They did, they followed, they followed the law, they liked their king, he was popular, he was fine, but they didn't have that deep bond. And even the people of the 10 tribes, at their core, were still loyal, and their heart of hearts, to the kingdom of David. Because that's where the connection really is, in an essential state. That's why, um, and, even, and, and even this, that others can be a king, and again, in a more external way, is only temporarily. Rambam says, and a very interesting law in Rambam, Rambam says that even though other kings can temporarily be a king, Malchus beis David, the kings of the family of David, I'm quoting Rambam, they're the ones who stand forever. But if a king will rise from other tribes, from the rest of the Jewish people, it will be interrupted. In other words, even this external kingship will not last. Because it's not the essence. It always belongs to King David. And the reason for that is, what's the reason? What's this reason? For kings, for, for David the why do we say that all other kings will eventually disintegrate and only King David's kingship will last forever? The answer is because God's kingship and relationship as king over the Jewish people is an eternal one. It's not something that's here temporarily for a specific part of time. The sages say an interesting thing. Whenever it says the word li, whenever it says the word li to me, li to me, it means for all of eternity. Ein la olam the word, whenever, whenever the Torah uses, like for example, God says, migdash, Make for me a sanctuary. That means that, there will be, that the sanctuary is an eternal thing. Because it's saying to me. Interesting. When God chose the Jewish people to be his subjects, it says, Kili b'nei yisrael to, to me, the people of Israel are my servants. If it's to me, it means it's going to be Eternal. So the so God is our king forever and ever, and we're his subjects forever and ever. Since King David, the Malchus of David, is the is the physical body in which this kingdom is enclosed, we have to say that this kingdom is going to be forever and ever. All other kingships are only external, temporary, and in the end they're going to fizzle out. Ultimately, it will all come back to Malchus-based David, to the kingdom of of the family of David good now let's take a look what is the story with this kingship during the time of exile Okay, King David was king his son Shlomo he lasted for many years there was a Davidic kingdom there was also another kingdom after Shlomo Melech this kingdom began to fizzle out as we said earlier became weaker parts of the Jewish people were We're were under the sovereignty of other kings? Fine. But when did it really collapse and deteriorate? When the Jewish people went to exile. Let's understand what means exile. The exile that we've been in for the last 2,000 years, close to 2,000 years now, 1,949 years since the temple was destroyed, is more than just a brutal experience for the Jewish people. Going through the various different persecutions and various different things that we've been through. It's much more than that. There's something very, very, very essential that is broken. Or at least, we might say, temporarily suspended. And that is like this. When we were in the land of Israel, we, God was our king and we're his subjects. When the Jewish people are dispersed amongst the nations and we go under what we call Shibud Malchias, the subservience to the various different empires, whether it was the Babylonian Empire, it was the Romans, and then it was various different countries that were... So there are two things that are happening here. First of all, in the actual sense, observance was always threatened. Besides today's days, thank God the we're, way we're, we've, we've been treated in the United States of America, Unbelievable. And the, the world has progressed to a place where there is freedom of, of, of religion and people can do that, that. That's a miracle. But throughout our long exile, there were always decrees. There were always impediments on our observance. We could not serve our God and do the mitzvot because this one decided to shut down the, the ritual bathhouse, the mikveh. Then they decided that Jewish slaughter uh, the way we have to, the laws of dietary laws, shechita is, is now good, or that's no good, or that's no good. But more than all of that, most of our observance was interrupted because we don't have a temple in which we can offer the, do the sacrifices and do everything that we need to do in order to f- complete the mitzvahs. We don't have that. So on the literal scale, Hashem's kingdom and His, 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 his um, uh, sovereignty over Israel and through that as kind of the king of the world has been broken. But on a deeper level, even when Jews are living through periods of time, when the host people where they're living by were not interfering with their observance and kind of allowed them, like the golden age of the Jews in Spain, for many years they lived before the Inquisition and before they were... And other times when we were not bothered and we kind of were allowed to kind of go and do our thing and serve Hashem and do our thing, the mere fact that there is an authority above us that's other than God, is already a disconnect of this kingship. to a disconnect of this kingship. Why? Because to be a subject of God means we only are held accountable to him, not to any other foreign, foreign, foreign king, ruler, people, or the like. We find this law in, in Torah law, when a Jewish person gets sold to slavery... To a non-Jewish master in the time when the temple stood, when a singular Jewish person, for whatever reason, couldn't support his family and ended up being sold as a slave to a non-Jewish master. The Torah says you should redeem him as fast as you can. It's a, a job upon all to take him out and to free him, to pay the, his non-Jewish master the money, the Gentile, so that so, and the Torah is very careful, do not in any way act in deception, pay the full price of whatever the guy paid for him, whatever it is, and take him out, allow him to be free. Why? And the Torah says, because God says, to me the Jewish people are servants. They shouldn't be a servant to anybody else, they're my servants. Now even if the non-Jewish master gives him free re- religious freedom, he lets him put on the tfilin every day, lets him take a day off on Shabbos, it's irrelevant. The fact that he has another master is interfering with having God as our only master if that's true about one Jew, how much more so is if it's the entire people uprooted from their land, under the authority and dominion of other nations and other people, that's, see what we realize is that galut, exile, is in a sense a, a, a complete disruption of God's plan in creation course that too is god's plan for an ultimate purpose but it's a complete breakdown you know there is a verse in Yecheskel, in ezekiel where ezekiel says words like this let me read you the verse very powerful i'm going to find it over here give me take me a minute Yeches, oh here it says there's a tremendous desecration of god's name ezekiel Ye- says but more the nations say, Am Hashem, this is the people of God. Umay They were exiled from their land. And God says, I'm gonna bring an end to the exile. You know why? Not for our sake. He says, I'm gonna have mercy for my name that has been desecrated. That the Jewish people, by the mere fact that they've been exiled, have desecrated my name. And then Hashem says, ani osa Basis Yisrael. I'm not doing this as God speaking through the prophet. I will not do this for your sake. Kiim l'shem country for my holy name. Ashechil that you have desecrated. For what? The mere fact that we're not a nation living in the land of Israel under the authority of God fulfilling His commandments and dispersed amongst the nations is a desecration of God's, of Hashem's name. That's what exile brings. That's what exile brings. So now... Now, however, the truth is, it's very important to note, it doesn't mean that once we went to exile, God has kind of disconnected himself from us. He's not our master, and we're not his subjects. In essence, in truth, at the very core, we're still, we're still, we're still his subjects, and he's our king. The Jewish people actually, in their first exile, when they went, when Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, exiled them, the Jewish people actually had a thought that because God sold them into slavery, they don't owe God anymore their allegiance. And they felt that they can throw off, they don't have to keep the mitzvot, they don't have to keep the commandments anymore, because God kind of, it's like, a, and, they say, and they came to the prophet, and they said to him, what is the rule when a master sells his servant to someone else? Does, does the first master still have any say on his servant? And Yehosheskel answers them very powerful words. God says, like this, these are the words of the Navi. God gets very upset at that notion. He says, This that you're entertaining, this thought that you are entertaining will never happen. Asher ata Oimrim, you're saying, We should be like the, the, the people of the land and do, and, and, and no, it's never going to happen. God says, I, I, I make an oath. The words of God, if not with a mighty arm, and an outstretched arm, I will be king over you. Whether you like it or not, God says, You're my subjects, you have to keep my commandments, even if temporarily, at least on a more revealed external level, it seems like you're not directly under my domain. But does it doesn't mean you do whatever you want. Even the nations in which the Jewish people were subjugated, and even though there is a rule, there is a law, it's a law, a Torah law, that we have to obey the full law of the land wherever we come. We have to follow the laws of the government where the Jewish people have been to accept it and live their way. However, here is a rule, according, is that we, it's only in regards to aspects of taxes, legal law of the land, in regards to religiosity, which means if the nation decrees that we cannot live by the certain law of the Torah, the Jewish people have no obligation to live, to, to listen. Ah, well, what I mean is they don't have an obligation. They don't have a Torah obligation. They can have the obligation of the, fo- of, the, of the king, you know, the inquisition threw people into the fire for not listening. Fine, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about do we have a religious obligation to listen when the nation is trying to compel us to disregard the Torah? Absolutely not. We know the three great Tzaddikim, the three great people who Nebuchadnezzar told them to bow down to, the big, to, his, to his idol and they didn't want to do that and he threw them into the fire. But they said to him, they said to him as follows. These were the words they said to him. B'massimu <laughs> bar with taxes and things like that, um, you're a king upon us. But this that you're telling us to bow down to an, an, uh, to an idol, you have absolutely no authority over us whatsoever. You're absolutely zero. You mean... They had a chutzpah to say this to, to Nebuchadnezzar. They ended up in the fire. God saved them. But, 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 but they did. So you see that essentially we don't have an authority other than God in matters of religious things. However, as we said earlier, that is only in the revealed experience. Sorry, that's in essence. but not. That's in essence but not in a revealed state. And in a revealed state, we're under the authority of nations and the like. In other words, deep inside, on our end as well, the Jewish people never, throughout our entire exile, truly accepted an authority in a deep way. Our allegiance was always to Hashem. That's why in our prayers, we pray, what do we say? Avinu malkenu, our father, our king. Ein lanu melech, we don't have another king. Ela ata Only You. It's always remained that. Just like it is in our relationship with Hashem. um, The same is also with our relationship with the Davidic lineage. Again, because as God is our king, that kingship is realized through the king. Following? Through the king. So what was our relationship with the kingdom, the descendants of King David? Well, throughout the exile, they were very, very hidden. We didn't even know who they are. Okay, so we know people were... Descendants of King David, but it can be anybody. So we didn't always have literally a king. There was always great rabbis that come from the the, the Davidic kingdom. And they were always important and, 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 and significant teachers and leaders of the Jewish people. But we didn't have a king. Yet, here's the thing. In the heart of the heart of the Jewish people throughout all of our exile, we've always prayed and hoped and begged and pleaded and had it all the time in the top of our prayers that God should restore the Davidic kingdom. We ask for it all the time. Every time we, we <laughs> say the blessing on grace after meals, the Birchas Hamazon, we say, <laughs> Rachem Hashem Elokeinu, Malchus Beis David the kingdom of David. And the Haftorah, where we're famous, Samchenu Hashem Elokeinu, make us rejoice Be Malchus Beis David, with the kingdom of David. And then we say, Kisa on his throne, Lo zar, no stranger will ever sit. In other words, deep inside, there is still a burning connection between the Davidic king, and we've always, and this always expressed itself in our waiting for Mashiach. Jews have always been waiting. When will Mashiach come to redeem them? It's a very, very deep thing. It's at the heart and heart of, of our Jewishness is this idea that we have a king. We don't know who he is, where he is, what, where, and when, but there is a king. And one day this kingdom will be will be will be restored. Now, based on all of this, we'll understand the fun, the centrality and the importance of Moshiach being a human king who comes to redeem the Jewish people. Because the main objective of the Moshiach is that what is Mashiach? Moshiach is the one who puts an end to the exile and restores. God's kingship first to the Jewish people and eventually to the entire world. But Moshiach is the first thing that has to end this galus. This is a horrible situation that for such a long time God kind of, you lose control. He, he purposely orchestrates it all. But it's as if Hashem lost control over his world and we are just out there lost. So Moshiach, what is Moshiach going to do? Mashiach is going to restore he's going to, this kingdom, this position. And let me read to you a Pasuk in, in Yirmi Yeho, in Jeremiah. It says like this. Hear these words. Mahu, it will be on that day. No'um says God of hosts. E'zboer, I will break. Here it says it so clearly in the verse that this is the essence of Mashiach's coming. It will be on that day, Hashem says, I will break. His yoke, me the yoke of the exile, from upon your neck, and your cords, the cords of exile. I'm not take, I'm going to rip them off. The loyavdu boy oidzarim. Strangers will not, will not um, um, enslave you anymore. The and hear these words. The avdu they will be able to serve God, their God. That as David, Malcolm, and their king David, Asher that I will appoint to them. And you see it so clearly. God says, this idea that we are subject to foreign luter, um, um, rulers, finito, over, I will restore, the. the uh, they will come back to serve their God and their king that I will appoint to them. Why the king? Who cares? We're serving God. No, 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 no. To serve God requires the human king who represents the king of David. It refers to Mashiach as David himself because Moshiach has got the nucleus of David, of David HaMelech, and they will serve him and the like. That's the idea. Now we'll understand again Rambam. When we speak, when Rambam describes Moshiach, the first thing that Rambam tells us is HaMelech HaMashiach King Moshiach, Osid He's going to... We have to believe. We believe it with absolute perfect faith. What do we believe? And it's interesting. Is it enough when we believe in Mashiach? Is it enough to believe that there will be an era of world peace? There will be a time when... Is that sufficient? But according to Maimonides, it's not the case. Ramam says we have to await His coming. Whoever doesn't believe in Him, a person... Why? That's the whole idea. That's the whole idea. Rambam says the King Mashiach is going to get up. He's going to restore the Davidic kingdom to its initial power, to its initial strength. He's going to build the temple. He's going to gather in the exiles of the Jewish people, and all the laws are going to be restored in his days. All the laws of the Torah are going to be restored, like they were back then. So think about that. What is Rambam clearly? He's clearly defining. This idea, Moshiach comes, he establishes a kingdom in the land of Israel, builds and brings the Jewish people back, builds the Holy Temple. So what happens now? If he builds the Holy Temple, all the Jewish people came back to the land of Israel, now we can have complete observance. Because we couldn't have complete observance for the last 2,000 years. For two reasons. Number one, there was no Beit HaMikdash. Mashiach comes and he rebuilds the Beis Mikdash. Number two, not only that he's rebuilding the Beis Mikdash, he's bringing all the Jewish people back onto the land. Because we know that many of the Torah laws only applies when you have the full nation living on the land. When there's only part of the nation living on the land, many mitzvot don't apply. So in order to restore full mitzvot observance, it's inherent for Mashiach to build the Beis Mikdash, restore and bring all the Jewish people back. But, but you see, but something very deep over here, it's not only the compliance of the mitzvot that Rambam is talking about, it's the restoration of the kingdom. Because at the core of it all is that God should be king through the kingdom of Mashiach. That's at the core of it. That's why we can also understand that even though in many prophecies there are so many things that talks about when Mashiach will come, one of the things are that there will be a, restora- a return to the, to the, to the kingdom. But that's a wrong. That, that's not, that's, and then it, if from that perspective, it really doesn't make a difference what's going to happen first. Maybe the Jews will return to Israel first and eventually they will build the temple. And then eventually, some at some point, some king will get up and he will be a king from David. The Rebbe says that that's, that's wrong. The Rebbe therefore denied the idea that the Zionistic return to the land of Israel is part of the Moshiach prophecy. The Rebbe Rebbe was very, very against that, even though it definitely is an introduction because it brought Jewish people back to the land of Israel. We rebuilt the country, the infrastructure. It's all a base, but it cannot be part of the redemption. The reason why it cannot be part of the actual redemption is because it was not done through Moshiach. And just like in in our... all the, just like in our observance of all mitzvot, the foundation of that observance has to be we first accept God as a king. After we have a king, we do all the mitzvot as, a re, as, a, as an actualization of that kingship. So the same is also in this bigger picture. The restoring of the observance back to full observance has to follow that order, that there is a king, and the people gather around that king, and the king get, is able to build the third temple, bring the Jewish people that, and then implement all the observance of the mitzvahs. So we can understand it has to follow that order. Because it's all, one is linked with the other, and it's all rooted, the foundation of it, is God's kingship of the world. And one more point, not only is it that the foundation of the, of the, of the kingship, it's actually the ultimate purpose of the kingdom, of, 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 of Mashiach. Meaning we can look at it and say it's the foundation because without a subservience at, at, at your heart, then the observance is kind of external. It's not really real. So there has to be first a, a, a subservience. But there's something deeper. The deeper reason of why we're, commanding, we're doing all the mitzvahs, what's the ultimate objective? The ultimate objective of all commandments is as a result of that, God is a king. That's why the Rebbe says that the main part of Mashiach is not even what he's going to do for the world. He's going to fix the world. The main part of Mashiach is that the King Mashiach is revealed. Hear that idea? The main part of Mashiach is the very notion that there is a king. And that king, again, has recognized the whole world. Why? Because that's God's kingship. And that's the main point. Everything else is detailed. Everything else is already going to fall into place. But the main thing is the return of a king to Israel, and as a result of that, a king eventually to the entire world. One more point I'm going to conclude with, and that is the importance of the king is one more thing I didn't touch upon, is that when there is a, when there is a king, it unifies the people to become totally Rambam says that one of the main notions of a king is to actually... These are the words Rambam says about a king. Hear these words. Very special. He says that a king's job is mainly... Let me see the words. He says, He gathers all of our people together. That means if people don't have all their aspirations unified with one unifying source, then everybody has got their own agenda. Everybody's doing their own thing. So you have a bunch of people. Maybe you have a community where people decide to live together. But they're not joined together in a very, very deep and real way. Unless they have this one individual who takes all these individual minds and people, brings them all together to become unified. They all share now a singular identity. Each one makes their own contributions in the way that each one needs to contribute, but it's all one unit. The king creates, in the words of the one of the great Talmudic scholars, the king creates the concept of a tzibor, of a community. Without the king you don't have a tzibor, an entity of a community. You have people that agree on some things and they work together, but it's not essentially one. That's the king's job. That's one of the reasons why the king why we need Mashiach before the Beis HaMikdash is built? Because the Beis HaMikdash has to be the building of the community. It can't be built by a bunch of individuals. The community as a whole, the entire nation of Israel, builds the third temple. In order to be a community, you have to have Mashiach first, who unifies the people as one entity, and then they can build the Beis HaMikdash. Because it's a unification. It's a community now. Without that, in the exile, you know, even though it's amazing the Jewish people survived, but there are so many different groups, so many everybody's doing their own thing, all over the place. This unification of the people as one entity, one being, is all unified in the king. We know that the king is called the heart of the people, just like the heart is what unifies. The heart energizes, pumps blood into all the limbs. All the limbs of the body function. And are invigorated and, and, and receive their vitality from the heart. So to the king is the vital force of the people. And all the people sense that they get their energy from him. And also, again, their direction and their vision. Together, they're all unified together in this, in this thing. And that's the reason why we have, a, a, in Judaism, the... A <laughs> It is so fundamental the idea of a Mashiach that's going to come redeem the Jewish people and eventually is going to bring in a higher consciousness and a higher awareness for all of mankind, for higher and deeper and deeper and deeper, as the say as the, the verse says that in those days from all across the world, all the nations of the world are gonna to flock to the Holy Temple in Jerusalem to be inspired, to pray, to connect, to serve, and to hear, to learn about God. Which is going to be the obsession of all of mankind. It's all going to be with knowledge to know our Creator. Being that our Creator is infinite, we will have that infinite pursuit of knowledge. Deeper and deeper and deeper. All through this individual of Mashiach. It's interesting how we're seeing the world today is collapsing so much in terms of lack of leadership. Because it's kind of throwing everything in disarray. So the moment someone who actually gets up that's a real leader, everybody's going to go, oh, thank God. It's finally the world is going to be ready because, like this, it's so crazy, and once, we're not, and we're, the world is going to be ready to receive it, and to and, to, and be excited about having a true leader. Then we merit to see it.